This is Facing Fentanyl. Interviews with actual users. That was my first encounter with fentanyl. Their experiences. My nose was to the steering wheel and I could barely stay awake. But most importantly, the lessons leading them out I'm to the only person in that picture that is still alive today. Where they can speak of what it is to be facing fentanyl. The following interviews depict substance use and mental health disorders, including abuse, depression, suicide, and trauma. If you or someone you know are suffering from these disorders, we recommend reaching out to the National Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org or the National Alliance on Mental Health at nami.org. That's N-A-M-I dot org. Listener discretion is advised. We'd like to thank our sponsor, La Jolla Recovery, before getting back to our interview. La Jolla Recovery is an alcohol and drug treatment center in San Diego, providing evidence-based solutions to addiction for over 12 years. The pandemic has impacted mental health immensely, and if you're wondering whether a loved one or yourself might be using a substance beyond recreation or fun or social bonding, La Jolla Recovery wants to answer all your questions in a private and confidential manner at LaJollaRecovery.com. That's L-A-J-O-L-L-A Recovery.com. That's again L-A-J-O-L-L-A Recovery.com. Now back to our interview. So the paramedics came, they hit me with Narcan. Funnily enough, like I had Narcan in my backpack. I guess they just couldn't find it. And um, Is it common that users have Narcan? I think it definitely is more common nowadays because uh, I was a part of a methadone clinic and they offered it to, um, to everyone in the clinic. And even you can go through the state and get it. And I th- I'm pretty sure that you can get it from a pharmacy without a prescription. I want to say... Uh, not 100% on that, but I'm pretty sure you can. It's, it's far more readily available than it was. So Narcan saved ago. your life? Absolutely, more than once, more than once. Um, it saves your life, but I, when... And to anyone who's hearing, by the way, you're, this seems like a story that's very just... This is like in another life, right? Because the life that you're leading today is just... You know, you're telling me you just had a conversation with your mom about traveling and right. about the, the, the how you're entrusted at, at work and a boat and and <laughs> so this is this is kind of a, a parallel life, but but this happens. This can happen to anyone, and and it's important to be aware of science. So so Narcan for someone who for any listener who doesn't understand what this is, Narcan is. Uh, Narcan is um, naloxone. Naloxone. So what naloxone does is, um, so you have opiate receptors. Naloxone goes in and rips all the opiates off your receptors. So it'll save your life. But like, if you're physically addicted to heroin or fentanyl, and you've been using dope for a minute, and you get hit with Narcan, what it's going to do is going to take all the dope that you've acquired to your receptors over the past how long you've been in addiction, and it's going to rip them out. And as soon as that happens, you're going to go into precipitated withdrawal. So it's like, it's going to save your life, but you're going to fucking feel like you're dying. <laughs> so It's awful. You puke, you vomit. I was, like, sitting on the toilet, using the toilet, and puking into the shower, the shitty hotel room, because my girlfriend was just... I woke up, I said, what... Like, I had been hit with Narcan a couple times prior to this. We were shooting dope in a hotel. So this wasn't your first rodeo? No. So, like, I knew what was going to... I I woke up, she's on top of me, and I said... All I, my first was, what happened? She said, dude, you fucking overdosed again. And I had overdosed prior, but I had been shooting it. So she was like, you have to stop shooting it, because every time you shoot it, you just fucking fall out, and you're scaring the shit out of me. I think you're going to fucking die every time, and then you come back. 
So I snored it, and the next thing I know, I wake up on the floor again, and I'm like, dude, what happened? She was like, you overdosed. I'm like, again? And I was just instantly pissed. And as soon as I said those words, I got up, and I ran to the bathroom, and it was like this shitty hotel room, and I puke on this uh, tile floor as I'm running to the bathroom, and then my next step is on that tile I just puked on, and I slip, and I bust my ass, and I just start puking where I'm laying, and I like grab the rim of the toilet like I'm dunking a basketball and just like pull my body weight toward it and just start heaving into the toilet and I'm just like fucking miserable so it takes you to cold turkey in an instant and so you're, you pretty much instantly go into precipitated withdrawal so like it's gonna save your life but goddamn, you're gonna feel like so it, it's it, it's a chemical that has more sensitivity to fent fentanyl or heroin itself yet doesn't have the activity Right, right. For somebody who's probably like, well, what are receptors? So it, opiates are body produce them naturally, and obviously synthetically they're a little stronger than the ones yeah, oh, for that, sure, yeah. that are produced when we have breakfast, have a good time with friends, uh, just hang out. Yeah, like your, your dopamine and serotonin, like, you know, especially like drugs like methamphetamine. And I think methamphetamine produces like the most dopamine but like I've never been a fan I've done a lot of meth not really a fan kind of off topic but and so you for, for someone who's in in active addiction of, 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 of fentanyl you probably lose interest in just your everyday activities yeah and then um You know, fortunately, I've always had people that, like, support me, whether it be, like, a girlfriend that I was living with at the time. And, um, you know, it, it breaks everyone down around you because, like, you're addicted to fentanyl. They're not. They see everything from, like, a clear-headed perspective. And they, they do all this for you. They give you money. They give you a place to live. They give you a car. They try and get you a job. They, they love you unconditionally. You steal from them. They still love you. And they just wonder, like... What am I not doing? Why am I not why does good he keep, enough? She keeps, why do they keep on doing this? Right, yeah, why am I not good enough for you? And it hurts them internally. It, it fucks them up. But it's not, it's not them and what they're doing or not doing. It's just like you being fucked up inside. And then like, I don't know, like I've been to a ton of treatment centers. I've tried to get sober a lot. But especially when I was younger, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Um, so you've tried to get help many times since yeah. you're young I've been going to detox and treatment since I was 17 um, the longest time I had in sobriety in my early 20s was in prison you know I, I ended up going to prison uh, in, in the state of Georgia um, but I, I couldn't stay clean and that's also a big part because like I wasn't ready I was still some, like my late teens early 20s shooting dope was still fun it was still exciting still relatively new like the lifestyle is kind of alluring like You know, just like kind of being a criminal and an outlaw and all this bullshit. I don't know. Just like the younger you, it's exciting. It's exciting. It's it's um, it's chaotic. And I, like early on in my life, my, like my early 20s, I definitely like thrived in that chaos. Like those those super violent spikes of like really super awesome times and like just like 10 seconds later, like an awful time and just like getting kicked out and like doing this and just achieving all these things that like mean nothing. When was the first time that you crossed your mind maybe this is getting out of hand or help? It's usually other people who want you to get help before you do, obviously. Right? That's, yeah, that's funny because I've, I've known since I was 17 years old, 18 years old, that I was 
a drug addict. And because, like, early on, like, drugs were, like, I was infatuated with drugs. Like, I want to know all about them. Like, I want to research them. Like, you want to, I know, because, you know, I got into opiates and then, like, I was just fascinated with opiates and pharmaceuticals in general, benzos and, like, you know, like, stimulants and, like, cocaine. And, you know, I just want, like, one to try everything. And, like, it was just fascinating, the lifestyle, you know. Um, but it's not until, like, you get deep and down, dark into it, you get, like, in the really, really gnarly, like, homeless circles where people are, like, their lives are super fucked up. Do you see where it takes you? At first, it's, like, fast and it's fun and run and gun and you're having a good time and you're partying and you're hanging out with people and, you know, like, you're you're in that environment where, like... You're still going to school, still holding a job? Uh, no, see, like, early on, like, I think this kind of contributed to me, like, using drugs, you know, in middle school, high school. I didn't like school. I hated school. I hated going to school. My, my life at home was also really fucked up, too. Mm. So... My mother is an alcoholic. My mother's in recovery. My mother's been clean for 12 years, 13 years. And then my father was a drug addict and alcoholic. And in 1999, my father committed suicide. So, like, I grew up with, like, in a really hectic, chaotic household without a dad. Thankfully, like, I feel like all the positive guidance I had, obviously, from was from my mom when she was sober. I love my mom to death, dude, you know. And, uh, and my grandparents, you know, my grandparents are really great people. But I feel like... Had my grandparents not been there, grounded the entire time to like support me and my brother, we both probably would have went left. Uh, it's just crazy because my brother went through everything I went through, but he's incredibly successful. You know, he's never been in trouble. He's never been in jail a day in his life. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like that's kind of contributing factor. Like, um, I kind of knew like alcohol and drugs from early on. You know, my mom um, was an early alcoholic. I never in a million years thought my mom would get sober, and then she did, and like. And then around the time my mom got sober is when I started trying drugs, you know, like smoking cigarettes with my buddies were like 10. I remember like stealing my, uh, my mom's boyfriends at the time, cigarettes, like smoking cigarettes with my buddies. And then we'd end up finding a little bit of weed. And then like his older brother would end up getting some alcohol or whatever. And then it kind of like, once you're in that circle, like, I, I guess they say like marijuana is a gateway drug, but I don't think it's the marijuana itself. I think like and you're in a, when you live in a state where it's illegal, like Georgia, like marijuana is illegal, you caught with weed, you're going to jail. Like, so if you're trying to find weed, you're automatically putting yourself in like a criminal oriented circle. So like when you're buying weed from drug dealers, like who's to say like next time you come, they don't have a little Coke or some Xanax or some Percocet. So like by like trying to find weed, you end up getting exposed to these other drugs. I don't think it's the weed itself though. It's just like this, the environment you're in, like when you're trying to, gain access to that weed and it, it's an it's also an economic uh, incentive for the seller to to perhaps you know have somebody come for more or other more stimulating substances yeah absolutely because like you know weed like kind of like a come and go thing some people stick with it some people don't and, and then and by the way i just wanted to say I'm, i'm sorry for your loss i can't imagine at that age having to deal with so much yeah um Yeah, when I was little, you know, it's it's weird. Um, you know, I was just told by my parents, my grandparents, that you know, so my dad was an alcoholic and he smoked cigarettes. Which, from me as a little kid, like drinking's bad, cigarettes bad, and cigarettes can kill you. So basically, I was told he got sick, and I just thought my dad died because he smoked a bunch of cigarettes because he constantly smoked cigarettes. So like, it wasn't until I was like 17, 18, coming back to that thing where I started using like heavier drugs that I found out he committed suicide. When I was like th when I was like 12 or 13, you know, and like gaining a better understanding about life, um, because 
my father's death was like really swept under the rug. You know what I mean? Like we didn't talk about it. Uh, we didn't go to his grave or anything like that. You know, it was just kind of like it happened. We got through it and don't look back. So like, you know, 12, 13, I'm, I'm gaining a better understanding of like, um, you know, just life in general and like mental health and like looking back on the situation, like the circumstances, like it wasn't talked about, swept under the road. We don't talk about it. You know, it never factually said like this is how I died. I started to put, you know, two and two together, but I kind of didn't want to, I kind of knew, but I didn't for f- factually, I didn't know, but I had a pretty good idea. So I think I was like 16, 17. And uh, I just asked my mom and uh, she got upset. And then right then and there, I knew like my suspicions were like confirmed she got really upset and she's like well you know he committed suicide and then uh i was actually one day riding with my cousin to go get oxycodone and she grew up with me she used to babysit me and i'm all upset and she's like what's wrong she's like dude i just found out like that dad like committed suicide and she's like dude what the fuck she was like we thought you you guys always knew we're like no so she tells me and she's like well you know they're both like alcoholics and my dad's starting to do drugs and so is my mom and they're getting divorced and you know apparently that was like weighing really heavily on my dad so basically he just like committed suicide you know he he ran like a hose from his exhaust pipe into his truck and just fell asleep he died from uh, carbon monoxide poisoning so like I find this out like I'm already like getting high and like we're going to get pills so I'm like all upset and um, you know it's like so this this is a lot to deal with, especially at a developmental stage. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna say that this is why I I, I started getting high. Um, I just always like getting high, like you know, doing opiates, just a super good feeling. I always like it for the feeling, the lifestyle too. So I don't want to say like I'm a drug addict because like my mom was an alcoholic or like because my father killed himself. Um, did that probably play like? Is that a contributing factor? Probably, yeah. But um, something tells me that you were able to talk about this in 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 treatment. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, for sure, for sure. I've yeah, I've done a lot of work like on my depression and and mom and my mom. You know, um, I held resentments against my mom for a long time because um, the environment I was brought up in, like uh, abuse. You know, my mom being beaten on me and my brother. You know, it's just really chaotic. And um, I held resentments for a long time until I became, or until I was in full addiction, right? And I realized that, like, my mom, when she's loaded, that's not my mom, you know? Like, I've been there, I know what, you know, I've, I've done all these drugs, I've drank. I know that, like, at the end of the day, when my mom's sober, my mom's a, a, an amazing person. That was never my mom, you know? And it really... I really went from like holding this resentment to just like feeling like goddamn like for my mom to like do those things she must have been hurting like really really bad and I, I just like my stance totally flipped. What do you think you received that empathy or that compassion or or, or the resolution of, of of these mixed feelings? Just like going through my own like depression and. Uh, just like all the hardships I went through because of my drug addiction, like, and all, all, don't get me wrong, like all the things that happened to me, like, um, like incarceration and things like that, it's all self-inflicted, you know, during my drug use. But like, you know, you sit down, you look at everything and you look through all the, the adversity you had to face and all the gnarly shit that happened when you were getting loaded. And you just like gain an understanding of like how hard it is. Like, 
people think like, you know, people that are drug addicts are just like freeloading and like, you know, they're just like all chipper all the time. It couldn't be further from the truth. There's been several times where I was like in full addiction and just like didn't want to do it anymore. But at that point in time, you really don't have a choice. You're physically addicted to the substance. You know what I mean? Like if I were to stop right now, I'm going to get ill. And like, you know, say you have a job at the time. You can't afford to stop doing dope because you're going to be sick for the next week and you're probably going to lose your job because you're trying to get sober. So it puts you in a stance where like um, you kind of have to continue to get high or you got to start like going to the methadone clinic, which is, in my opinion, can be worse because methadone is like methadone is a. Uh, 100% the hardest drug I've ever came off of. I've done it twice. I went to the clinic two different times, both times for over a year at pretty high doses. And uh, kicking methadone is like fentanyl and heroin. Like you're going to be really, really sick for three to five days. And then you peek out. And then every day after you wake up and you feel a little bit better, which gives you hope to push forward. Like you, oh, I feel better than I did yesterday. So it gives you hope. But like with methadone, it's got such a long half-life that it sticks around your system for so long that like day after day after day, you wake up and you're just as sick as the day before and you just start to give up and lose hope. And then you end up like, maybe like leaving a place like against medical advice or clinical advice and then like going back to it. It's hard to kick. And what do you think was the magic bullet this this last time? Um, definitely like, so for, for the longest time, you know, I've had, I've dealt with a lot of depression and, um, suicidal ideations like not pass I would say for sure passive suicidal like and when I say that I mean um I'm not actively out here like trying to kill myself or commit suicide but like if I die um you know while I'm using or just by chance were to die I was okay with that and I was at peace with that for sure and then uh, so I really kept that stance of like I don't even know if I want to live you know any further because my life has been such shit self-inflicted of course up until then like so the last time I got high you know I just had a, a, a string of like really really bad experiences and I just like mentally could not handle my life anymore like I was like I showed up to detox and I was just literally defeated like physically emotionally just like defeated just could not anymore and I kind of realized like I had so many close calls like with the overdoses and stuff That I kind of realized, like, so I overdosed and was saved by paramedics two weeks ago, for instance. So say they didn't show up or no one was with me when I overdosed. Two weeks ago from today, I would have been dead and not here and I wouldn't have lived these past two weeks. By the way, this is not two weeks ago of now. This is just just speaking about. Correct. Just like an example of time frame. So um, I was like, damn, that'd be fucked up because like the past two weeks been kind of cool, you know, like been getting sober and getting back on my feet. And I really like switched my stance of like, just not wanting to die anymore. And just, it was a combination of like, actually for once in my life, wanting to live because things were improving, um, making a decision to just not do it anymore. Like, cause I've gone to treatment several times in treatment, but ultimately in the back of my mind, like had reservations or knew I was going to get high again. One day, maybe when I get back on my feet and get a job and save a X amount of dollars and get a car and apartment, then uh, I have a little bit of money to play with. Then I can get high again. Are the so it, it, for someone who's never heard about the word reservation? Reservations are kind of <clears throat> a reservation is basically like I come into treatment, you know, but. Um, 
I'm trying to think how to explain that. Let me see. It's basically just like in the back of the head, my head. I know I'm gonna get high again. Maybe under this circumstance or this, like, like I said, like maybe I'm gonna come into treatment because like I'm fucked up right now. You know, I don't have any money. I don't have a place to stay, so I'm gonna come to treatment, get back on my feet, you know, give me a little job, save up a little bit of money, and then maybe once I get out of here, I can start getting high again. Like, never really fully committing to not wanting to get high anymore. I just had to, like, change that perspective, just, like, not wanting to do it anymore. Is it now more common to be speaking about these mental health disorders at treatment, such as a depression? Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, like, as a man, um, There's a stigma on, like, men, especially, you know, I'm from the South. Like, it doesn't matter how you look or no, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter how you feel. It matters how you look. Like, you know, if if you're upset, go hug a tree or this and that. Or if you're if you if you deal with depression, that's a weakness. Um, you know, you're weak. You're mentally weak. You're not mentally fit. You know, like basically like um basically like demasculize you like if, if if you have depression or anxiety then you're like a sissy or whatever it may be but now i feel like um it's far more acceptable to talk like as, as a man to talk about their mental health and mental health in general is like you know you have like uh all these celebrities beginning to talk about their mental health and i think that's like kind of driving people it's it, from 10 20 years ago is like far more uh easy And people are far more understanding. And being able to talk about grieving and loss. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, I had to talk like, you know, if I were to tell you that, like, uh, you know, things that happened in my childhood, like, um, you know, like my father or some other things, like, you know, I've, I couldn't get those words out of my mouth without, like, bursting into tears. Mm -hmm. So, like, when you just continue to talk about it, it's tough, it's uncomfortable, but, like, once you do it enough, you know, like, um, and what really... I think I would talk about it in like group settings and like treatment. And then all these people like say, I, you know, relate to someone on being like sexually abused or like their family mother dying. And then I say something and then in turn, they're like, wow, well this, this, this. And they relate with their own situation. It's kind of empowering because you're like, fuck, I'm not alone. You know, because you think like maybe you're the only one that these things have happened to you. And then you say it and then like all these people around you begin to come out with their own stories. It's like really empowering. When was the first time that you felt comfortable being vulnerable or opening up about something that was uh, so, so sensitive? Probably the past um, four years, probably like 2017, 2016. That's when I got out of prison and I went to a sober living home and I like stayed sober for almost a year. And For somebody who doesn't know what a sober living home is, this is a place where you go after... Yeah, so sober living is like, you come out of detox, and um, this particular place was um, kind of just like, it's not a detox, it's not a residential, it's basically an apartment building, you pay $200 a week, and you have a bed, and uh, you get a job, you go to X amount of meetings a week, and you you pat, you give clean piss you know if you, if you fail a drug screen you get kicked out so an alcohol and drug free housing absolutely yeah which must be very helpful when you're trying to get better oh for sure for sure it was 2016 I come to this program and uh, these people I met in this program like I speak to to this day mm -hmm. some of the best friends I've ever made so was, you created some good relationships there for sure absolutely I think that's a big part of it you know you have like people um that are motivated with similar goals. Like, I, I really changed up, you know, because there's, like, wherever you go, wherever program, sober living, there's going to be those kids that are, like, kind of riding the line, 
you know, they're trying to, they're maybe doing, they're staying out late and doing this and like hanging out with chicks and doing stuff they're really not supposed to. And I really had to like, just like focus myself on like doing, for once in my life, just like doing the right thing. And where did this conscience come? Did, did you? I think it was fear. I didn't want to go back to prison. Um, and uh, I don't know, I just, uh, I lost everything I had before I went to prison. Um, you know, uh, the girl I was in a relationship with left and was dating someone else. And her new boyfriend um, made a bonfire with everything I owned and burned it in the backyard. So when I got out of prison, I didn't have an outfit to put on. Um, my mom picked me up and uh, she took me to Walmart. She bought me $100 worth of groceries and my grandma gave me like a $50 um, gift card, like a Visa gift card. And they left and they went back to where they're from three hours away. And um, I don't know, man, just my life improved so fast. I just, you know, just like all these material things, they come and go. I really learned that lesson too. Like I was so pissed. Oh, they burned this shirt and fucking my such and such sunglasses. I was so pissed off about these material things. And like, it, it honestly doesn't mean anything. It comes and goes, material things. I've, I've lost everything and gained it back like 10 different times. I will say when you lose everything you have and then get it back, Each time you do it, it gets harder and harder because you dig your hole deeper and deeper. So, like, every time you try and make it come back, it gets a little bit tougher than the last time. So, it, it's a myth, too, of, you know, it's kind of rock... There is, sometimes there's no rock... The rock bottom, you can keep on drilling? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Literally, like, every run I've had, when I say run, like, leaving treatment and starting getting high again, uh, my experience out there has been far worse And um, I've done more damage to my mental health, to my family, financially, just all across the board. It just gets worse. You think like, oh, I'm going to leave treatment with this girl and we're going to go in a hotel room and we're just going to shoot heroin and we're going to chill and everything is going to be cool. That's the idea you have in your mind. And then when that actually happens, shit just goes left. And next thing you know, you're in these gnarly fucked up situations you don't want to be in. And like you have these people that come into your room from next door because they like... You were smoking a cigarette outside and you start talking about dope. Next thing you know, they bring a duffel bag in. It's just like full of guns and methamphetamine. And you're like, God damn, dude, I just thought we were going to chill and like watch forensic files. But now here we go again. And it's like all fucked up. So in treatment, do you also kind of find yourself being different saying like, no, nah, they, they don't understand me. I'm an IV user. Does that does that happen sometimes? Um, no. Or, or do you just have to get to a place of saying like, okay, everybody's the same. When did you have that glimpse? I don't, I, I don't know. I think uh, I've really just always been, like, pretty open with it because, um, I don't know, I feel like in treatment centers there's kind of, like, two, I don't know if you want to even group them together, but basically it's mostly, like, people that drink, you're alcoholics, and people that do dope. And, like, people that do dope pretty much always relate on something. Like, we might not both shoot heroin, but we both shot meth, or, like, we both use IV. So we instantly relate. Have you ever experienced some prejudice at a 12-step meeting because of views? Uh, no, see, so when I was first getting sober, uh, I was just more, interesting enough, I was more drawn to the AA program versus NA. So like, interesting. Um, I just relate more, and I feel like... Um, no knock on NA, I go to NA too. But, By the uh, way, for someone who's never heard the, 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 the acronym, NA stands for? AA is Alcoholics Anonymous, and then NA is Narcotics Anonymous. So um, where I was going to meetings at in Georgia, um, it was this building, and top story was AA, and bottom was NA. <laughs> and just my own personal experience, AA was more like your older crowd, 
I, I would say more serious. And then the downstairs meeting was like where you have kids bust in from treatment programs that don't want to really, really want to be there. They're just trying to meet chicks, um, more of like a, a, a popularity contest type deal. And it just really wasn't my scene. I just felt far more comfortable in AA. This is Facing, Facing Fentanyl. Fentanyl.